Good afternoon. This is WVEW LP Brattleboro, 107.7 FM, your community radio station. Also streaming live online at WVEW.org. You're listening to Indigo Radio, deepening understanding and making connections, on the air every Sunday at noon. We are a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. You can also find us on Facebook at Indigo Radio and on Instagram. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the hosts and guests, not the radio station. Last week, you listened to Anna Milani and Becca Polk discuss the history of white supremacy in the U.S., what defines the current alt-right movement, and the connections to U.S. imperialism that leads to the fostering of white nationalism and xenophobia. Today, our theme is about unions, particularly the rise of unions under a capitalist system, the recent teachers' union struggle in Vermont, and how unions can serve to deaden labor struggles. I'm Corey Sorensen, and I'm here with Nina Kunamoto, and Nina has worked in schools in Massachusetts as a teacher teaching social studies, and she's also helped start a union in Holyoke, Massachusetts. Nina, could you talk with us about what a union is? Sure. A union rose up in the face of um, the Industrial Revolution and really in the rise of capitalism. It is, in essence, a resistance against the exploitation of capitalism, of horrible working conditions, of poor pay, of abuses. Um, And that's initially, that was the purpose of labor unions and why and how it rose up. Um, And that was in the late 1800s. And and over time, like in the early teens, and I'm, I'm talking specifically about the United States, the unions became co-opted um, by owners and the state, and they'd become sort of part of the workplace, and unions, the purpose of unions had more become about compromises and about wages and working conditions at the work site, and and I have a question for you, Corey. How do you think compromises may weaken or impact labor? So compromising with like owners of a company in order to get like a better wage, yeah. food mm-hmm. on the table, that kind of thing. Right. Well, I mean, I think that compromising in some situations in union organizing would um, is important. You need to have food on the table and you need a better wage. I think how it can weaken the struggles is that it's i mean just getting the few dollars more in your wage isn't it shouldn't be the overall goal i think that another purpose of union organizing is to to participate in um the decisions and control of how your um, workplace is run Mm -hmm. yeah and and i think one of the weaknesses of unions today is that a lot of the focus is on unions and on like the bread and butter of um, sort of the bread and butter issues of unions, which is basically just wages and um, working conditions on the work site. And um, unions 
in order to strengthen it and to bring more people across the spectrum together is really to fight like the causes like why do we have a union in the first place that 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 needs to be addressed um the the economic system that we live in that's created the conditions and the wages is what needs to be tackled and and unions today really don't tackle the root causes of unions which doesn't mean that unions are not necessary it is necessary in this moment in time but the focus needs to be shifted to larger issues um, such as the economic systems that we live in, such as um, white supremacy, mass incarceration. And it's necessary also because it's a, A, a site of resistance, and B, it's a site for education. And I think you have experience with that. By sort of spending some time with the teachers down in Oaxaca, where they used unions as a form of educating people to think beyond just wages. Right. Well, I'm thinking about the teachers in Oaxaca, like all in the Zocalo, they would take over the radio stations and spread messages that were pro teachers' union and educate people mm-hmm. about what was actually happening while the mm-hmm. uh, mainstream media was trying to shut or they were giving information about teachers, like that they're lazy or that um, they have special privileges, these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So I, f- I think the union was also a way for people to educate each other mm-hmm. and, and educate the larger public about what was actually going on. Right. And the teachers unions in Mexico um, and Oaxaca don't just address wages. I mean, they address larger issues, right? Yeah, well, it's against the educational reform that would eventually lead to privatization of schools and corporate control over education, basically. Right. And and for those of you listening who are not haven't listened to our past shows or are not familiar with the teacher strike in Oaxaca, um, teachers in, in 2006 went out on the streets and um, blocked roads and they gathered in the Zocalo, which is sort of the city center plaza, and protests for, protests for how, how long was that? About a year? Six months or nine months? Yeah, I don't know exactly the, okay. for how long they had occupied the Zocalo, but yeah. I mean, this union struggle is over, has a long history mm-hmm. of... Um, yeah. It's not wasn't just this one year. No, no, right. it wasn't. But the major one with a lot was in 2006 and they had one um in 2016 as well. Yeah. And the the repression. Again, back to sort of the purpose of unions and kind of thinking about like, you know, today as teachers, as workers anywhere, like to think about like what is the purpose of a union um, and why join, why, what should it be doing more than just securing livable wage and, um, and better working conditions? I think that for right now, let's go into a song okay. and Sounds we can come back and continue this conversation. The first song that we're going to play is a song, again, talking about how Unions in the past and present have been there to educate people. And in one way that's happened is through singing. Mm -hmm. So this song is well-known, written by Woody Guthrie and performed by the Almanac Singers. It's a union song that was written by Woody in response to a, a a request for a union song from a female point of view. This song is union made. And here it is. 
Welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio on 107.7 FM, Brattleboro Community Radio Station. Today, we're talking about unions. Um, and we just heard a song by Woody Guthrie and um, the Almanac Singers. It's interesting uh, that they asked for a female perspective, as Corey said when he introduced the song, because one of the things I think that unions need to do is address, again, larger issues of white supremacy, about gender inequality. And so what an appropriate song. If you're just joining us, we're talking about unions today, um, the purpose of unions. And we're going to move on to talking about unions in Vermont. Yeah, this next part of the show, we're going to play an interview that Marisa Nielsen gave with two people who are working for the union in Vermont. And they're going to talk a little bit about the current issues that, are, that unions are facing in Vermont. And I'll move right into the interview. So hi, Ellen and Anne. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the work that you do and how it relates to workers' struggles? Sure. You want me to start? So I'm Ellen. I'm Ellen Schwartz. I'm the president of the Vermont Workers Center, and I'm also involved with a local organizing committee here in Wyndham County. And the Workers Center maintains a workers' rights hotline that people can call into around um, injustices at the workplace or if they have questions about things that are happening at work and wondering what they can do about it. Um, we also organize community support for um, labor struggles. So um, recently for the teachers, we were helping to organize the rally. We've organized support for nurses, bus drivers, other people who are either organizing or they're involved in contract struggles. Um, we're a really close ally of Migrant Justice, which is a um, farm workers' rights organization. And I would say the last thing is we have a, our major campaign is Healthcare is a Human Right, which um, is a campaign that's about everybody having the right to health care and people who are mostly impacted by not having access to health care are poor and working class folks. Thanks. Um, this is Anne Kaplinkler. I teach uh, seventh and eighth grade social studies at Brattleboro Area Middle School, affectionately known as BAMS. <laughs> and um, I did a social justice teaching program through the, well, now what's now the Marlboro um, Graduate Center. Um, and I'm fairly involved in our local union. So we're part of NEA, and that's also part of Vermont NEA. The, I believe it's the National Education Association. I probably should have looked that up before <laughs> the, the, um, the exact acronym. Um, and our local association is Wyndham Southeast Education Association, WSEA. So I'm currently a building representative from the middle school from BAMS to the union um, and we have a number of people at the middle school who are on the board of directors and specifically the executive board of the union. Um, so I would say that's probably the most direct way that my work relates to labor struggles and workers struggles. Um, we did, we organized the, I'm actually the co-chair of the Political Education and Action Committee locally and have been involved with that committee at a more regional level as well, along with Colin Robinson, who's our political director essentially for Vermont NEA. Um, and so we were involved in organizing the rally um, to support the budget, encourage Scott to uh, pass the budget, despite the fact that he vetoed it initially. 
um, and then at a more local level, just uh, information and education around what's happening in the state and what's happening with the union um, with local members. Thanks very much. Um, so both of you have slightly different roles in this, but could you both talk about what current issues are facing unions today in your experience? I can start with that. Mm -hmm. um, so the rally that we organized um, on June 7th, I believe it was, um, as I said, had to do with the Vermont state budget. And there's been um, kind of a history of things that have happened since Phil Scott has gotten elected to the position of governor. But I'm, you know, that definitely uh, piggybacks on other things that have happened throughout the country and throughout the state um, attacking unions. Um, Governor Scott seems pretty intent on mandating that uh, teachers pay 20% of their health care premium and that the state, or well, essentially the local school boards, but dictated by the state, pay 80% of the premium, which would essentially undercut collective bargaining for unions across the state. Um, and that's similar to what, for example, Scott Walker did in um, Wisconsin and what other people throughout the country have done to undercut the collective bargaining rights of unions. Can I interrupt, Anne, and just ask, why would this um, cause problems for unions that are not teacher unions? Why would this lead to that causing issues with other unions? Good question. So I th my understanding is the the rhetoric is that um, it's a cost-saving measure, and since the state employees have to pay 20%, then why shouldn't all, you know, the state employees association or um, union has to currently play, pay 20%, so why shouldn't all state employees pay 20%? But really what's underneath it, as far as we can tell as a union, is really um, aimed at undercutting collective bargaining rights across the board. So I think if teachers' collective bargaining rights are undercut, that is, you know, has a negative impact on unions across the state, and it sends the message that, well, you know what, unions are not important, they're not as strong as they were before, and we can start to mandate things at the state level that will undercut the power of unions, is my perception of that. Thanks. And Ellen, what about you? What's your perspective? So, um, I would add to what Anne just said, that it also has a negative effect on non-unionized workers, mm -hmm. because, um, for example, in right-to-work states, uh, there's a 3.2% on average wages for non-unionized workers, and they tend to have fewer benefits, such as health insurance, than people who are working in right-to-work states. So there's like this trickle-down. If you erode those rights for unionized workers, it trickles down, and it's even worse for non-unionized workers. Mm -hmm. So in addition to the issues that Anne brought up. I think another big issue right now for unionized workers in Vermont and across the country is that it used to be that a lot of unionized workers were in the private sector. They were in, in industry. And that has really changed because a lot of industry has left not just Vermont, but the U.S. Mm -hmm. And so in Vermont, the largest union is the one, is Vermont NEA. Mm -hmm. It's got over 12,000 members. Vermont State Employees Association has about 5,000 members. So a lot, a large proportion of the unionized workforce in Vermont is in either the public, public sector or sort of quasi-public, meaning like organizations like the Howard Center that's a nonprofit organization, but it mainly relies on public funding. Mm -hmm. So a lot of unionized workers are in the position of having their salaries and benefits paid through taxpayer money in a state where fewer and fewer 
other workers, where what's happening for non-unionized workers is that they're becoming part of the precariat, meaning they have no benefits, they may work two to three jobs, they may have precarious hours, and they're looking at their tax bills and saying, why should I be paying these benefits for people who, when I don't have, like, when I don't have health insurance myself, why should I be paying for teachers or state workers to and have And it pits them? workers against each other. It pits exactly. teachers against, like, somehow teachers are these other kind of workers that get amazing benefits mm. or something. Right. So to follow up with that, um, Ellen, can you talk about um, these kinds of issues and uh, just elaborate a little bit more on are they different than they were 30 or 40 years ago and how are they different? Um, what, what roles have they played and how have they shifted over time? So I would say they are different because 30 or 40 years ago, the vast majority of unionized workers were not in the public sector. And public sector employees employees tended to earn less than people in the private sector. And whereas now that's actually that's actually shifted. The, the fastest the other thing that's changed is that right at, between 2004 and 2014, the fastest growing sector in the job market in Vermont was healthcare and education. And that's also where you see like nurses or LNAs who are either organized or organizing teachers, public mm-hmm. workers. So that's like a really big shift in the political economy. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the, I think my own feeling is one of the things that um, organized labor that unions need to be doing is both educating their own members about this so that people understand what's going on and also making common cause with the people who are on the receiving end of what they provide. Mm -hmm. So that could be nurses making, like many nurse struggles are around safe staffing. That affects patients too. Mm -hmm. So So making common cause with the people who are receiving, nobody wants to be the the recipient of unsafe staffing when you're in the hospital. Mm -hmm. Parents want good public schools for their kids. Um, adjuncts, professors who are organizing, people going to college want a room where they can sit down with their professor and have office hours in an actual office and not be doing that on the hood of a car. So all those things that affect the workforce are also Mm -hmm. affecting the um, recipients. The the riders of buses don't want exhausted bus drivers who are likely to get into accidents. Mm -hmm. And I think that unions need to be making that sort of common doing that common organizing with the recipients of what they provide and and building around that that building that unity around what we have in common. And I would add, I mean my understanding is there's just a lot fewer unionized workers than there were mm-hmm. 30 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and benefits in general in most positions, I mean like we have seen a shift for healthcare becoming much more like quote-unquote, consumer-driven, which essentially means high deductibles and maybe lower premiums, but that really means a lot more out-of-pocket for people Mm -hmm. who are paying those costs. Um, And erosion of unions across the board. I think there's kind of been this demonization of unions. Um, And so as we see unions' rights and power getting um, diminished in other states, I think that's slowly happening in Vermont Mm -hmm. as well. Now, if we took a more critical look at unions and unionizing um, and union organizers, what are some of the um, things that are lacking, do you think? For example, with the NEA, um, they're very closely connected with the state. Um, Maybe, Anne, could you talk a little bit about that? Well, I know, for example, that Vermont NEA definitely has their philosophical differences with um, the U.S. national NEA. Um, For example, NEA 
endorsed Hillary Clinton, and Vermont was very clear that they did not want to support that. They feel like they're kind of, you know, NEA in general is kind of um, in the back pocket of a lot of corporate interests, and there's, you know, a lot of connections there. Um, at the Vermont state level, I know fewer details about, like, I mean, I know that Vermont NEA has a lot of connections with um, elected officials in Montpelier, and we definitely have folks that are... Um, in the state house on a regular basis, being consulted, um, but I don't know as many details about connections between Vermont NEA and Vermont State. Um, I do know that they have an influence on policy in certain areas, um, and yeah, unfortunately, I don't have a whole lot of detail to back that up. Sorry. What about you, Ellen? Do you have examples yeah. of either unions being bought out or um, unions that have been? continue to be strong uh, throughout the years? I can give you examples of both. And I would say the general thing is that I think that unions need to be moving away from the model of business unionism, which is like, we're just here to provide you with great auto insurance and lobbying and more into an organizing model and a mobilizing model. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so an example of a union that made that transformation was the union, or is making it, is the union I was in. I was a teacher in Massachusetts for about 20 plus years, and I was part of the MTA, which is another union that's part of the National Education Association. So it's a sister union to Vermont NEA. And until recently, when they got a new president who's really transforming it, it was very much in the, we're in in bed with the po the Democratic politicians. We don't want to rock the boat. And one thing they didn't rock the boat about, which I disagreed with the union about, was about the over-testing of students mm -hmm. until it came to the point where that testing was going to be used to evaluate teachers. And then mm -hmm. suddenly the teachers were up in arms, but members of the public were saying that was very self-serving. Like, where were you when it was hurting our kids? Mm -hmm. You only spoke out when it was hurting you. Mm -hmm. And so to me, that's an example of like the dangers of not taking a principled stand about something that was not good for kids. Mm -hmm. um, an example of a union, a couple of unions that they both happen to be teachers unions that I think have done a really stellar job is the Chicago Teachers Union. It would be probably not enough time on this show to <laughs> go into it, but there's a book of lessons from the Chicago's Teachers Union, and I'll just give one example from the Seattle Teachers Union where they got involved with parent groups and found that among the parents, a really big issue was the inequities around recess so that the kids from poorer neighborhoods which had more kids of color tended to have less less recess time or zero recess time than the kids from the better off neighborhoods and they made that a bargaining issue in their contract and they actually went to the mat for that and so when they went out on strike they had a lot of parent support because they were they were bargaining not just about their wages and working conditions well this was a working condition but it was also a student condition mm -hmm. and i think that kind of thing where where a union is really seeing those community issues as related to their work is an that's how I think unions ought to be going. <laughs> Those are both really clear examples. Thank you. Um, is there anything else that you two would like our listeners to hear about um, in the work that you do or locally here in Vermont? Well, I was, I've been thinking about the um, Supreme Court case that's likely to get decided in the next year or so now that there has 
been another justice added to the Supreme Court, um, having to do with right to work and agency mm -hmm. fee. Um, and it's looking like up until this point, a court case has been upheld that it is legal to essentially charge um, an agency fee, basically to um, make people who are not in the union pay a certain amount of money because the union bargains on behalf of all, at least the teachers. Mm -hmm. um, and right, so um, up until this point, unions across the country have been able to collect, you know, our union, I think it's like 80 or 85 percent of the dues because we're bargaining on behalf of everybody. Um, it, it seems likely that in the next year there's going to be a Supreme Court case that's going to reverse that decision, and it could go as far as to require unions to repay the last several years' worth of agency fees um, to people that were not members of the union during that time. Um, so that, I think, would be a real step backwards in terms of unions' political power and the, the rights that unions have. Um, and we've seen that come up in individual states up until this point. But as far as I know, the, the statute that stands is that agency fee up until this point has been legal. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you want to say more about that or other things. Yeah, that no, you, I, would, you mind? I would echo what you said and just that that's not... It, it sounds like it's an issue for the coffers of the union, but it's actually an issue about the power of organized labor because not only does the union bargain on behalf of all of the members, so everybody benefits from the contract, they also will grieve on behalf of any member because when you're grieving in the union, you're really grieving on behalf of the contract. So it doesn't matter whether the victim of of a malpractice was a union member or not. Mm -hmm. And that's why an agency fee is charged. So it really weakens unions to un undercut that. It's, it's a step towards right to work. Mm -hmm. um, the, I guess the other thing I would add is that I think it's really important. I mean, I, I, I advocate for universal health care. This is something I believe in. It's something the worker center is involved in. But from a worker's rights perspective, I think um, with the rising cost of health insurance and the decreasing, like increases in things like deductibles and copays, um, I think it's one of those. Um, it, it can be used as it was used with the teachers to really try to divide workers from each other, and that the more that we can all get on board with everybody's right to health care and not have that become an issue that can be used to divide workers, the better we'll all be in terms of our unity, but also the better we'll all be in terms of our health. <laughs> Agreed, yeah. And unfortunately, the VHI board, which is, in my understanding, a board that is essentially created just for teachers' health care within Vermont, um, and historically there have been representatives from um, Vermont NEA and from the Vermont School Boards Association, and I think possibly from one other organization. Um, and now, rather than the balance being fairly equal between those different groups, there's three members of the Vermont School Boards Association, and we're down to one Vermont NEA member. And so part of the transition that's happened with our health care has been because there's been such a strong influence mm -hmm. of the Vermont School Boards Association. Um, and clearly Vermont NEA is not supportive of that. Um, but that's, again, indicative of this shift that's been happening both in healthcare and with unions um, in Vermont and beyond. Well, thank you. Thank you both very much for your time today. Um, it was a pleasure speaking with you. And, and if you would like to share any links on our Facebook page, um, people can check them out there. So thanks so much. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you.
And if you're just joining us, this is Indigo Radio that you're listening to on 107.7 FM, Brattleboro Community Radio Station. Um, And we were just listening to an interview. Marisa Nielsen interviewed Anne Kaplinka-Lair and Ellen Schwartz. Um, Anne Kaplinka-Lair is a teacher at the Brattleboro Brattleboro Middle School, um, is also very involved with unions, and Ellen Schwartz is the head of the Vermont Workers Center. And our topic today is about unions. And I thought some of the things that uh, Ms. Schwartz was saying was very interesting, um, especially when she said about common cause. And in the next segment, I'll talk about my experience working down in Holyoke and organizing with the teachers at um, the Palo Ferry Social Justice Charter School. We chose the IWW with, with that, the common cause that she mentioned in mind. And I thought it was also interesting that um, she brought up universal health care because in after World War II, there was AFL and then there was CIO. And that's exactly what CIO was fighting for was national health care. So <laughs> the struggle continues. But it, when the Cold War just really sort of deadened their struggle because they joined with AFL and um, and kind of gave up a lot of the grassroots struggles in order to merge with the state. And I, I definitely see a lot of problems with unions merging with the state and the state really co-opting unions because I think the state always stands on the side of the owners. Right. I thought it was important, the distinction that Ellen made between unions being business models Mm -hmm. looking for wages rather than unions being about organizing and mobilizing. Absolutely. So I wanted to make a little PSA because as teachers in public education continues to be under attack here in the U.S., I think that we can always learn about other teacher and education struggles. So going back to what I brought up before about those teacher struggles in Oaxaca, Brattleboro Solidarity is going to be hosting a free showing of a documentary called Un Poquito de Tanta Verdad, which means a little bit of so much truth. And this is a documentary on the 2006 popular uprising in Oaxaca, Mexico. So snacks will be provided. It's at the Latches Theater from 4 o'clock to 6 p.m. And I'm going to read a brief synopsis of the film just so you have a better idea of what you'll be coming to uh, watch. So when the people of Oaxaca decided they'd had enough of bad government, they didn't take their story to the media, they took the media. In the summer of 2006, a broad-based, non-violent, popular uprising exploded in the southern Mexican state of Oaxaca. Some compared it to the Paris Commune, while others called it the first Latin American revolution of the 21st century. But it was the people's use of the media that truly made history in Oaxaca. This 90-minute documentary, A Little Bit of So Much Truth, captures the unprecedented media phenomenon that emerged with tens of thousands of school teachers, housewives, indigenous communities, health workers, farmers, and students took 14 radio stations and one TV station into their own hands, using them to organize, mobilize, and ultimately defend their grassroots struggle for social, cultural, and economic justice. So it's a really great film. I've seen it, and I hope to see all of you there. And we're going to move into another song. This is a song 
by Tom Morello, who has a solo project called The White, The, the, White, the Night Watchman. And Tom Morello, he's played in bands like Rage Against the Machine and Audio Slave. And this is uh, part of his music and activism. The song is called Union Song. Today's programming on WVEW is underwritten in part by Everyone's Books. Located in downtown Brattleboro at 25 Elliott Street, Everyone's Books is a family-owned, independent bookstore that has been serving the community for over 30 years. They specialize in books about social change, the environment, politics, and travel, and offer a huge range of children's books. You can reach them by phone at 802-254-8160 or online via their website at everyonesbks.com. WVEW thanks Everyone's Books for their support of this station. And we're back. You're listening to Indigo Radio, uh, making connections and deepening understanding. We're live on WVEWLP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station. You were just listening to Tom Morello singing Union Song, and I'm here with Nina Kunamoto, who's going to talk now about her experience uh, starting a union in Holyoke, Massachusetts, and working with IWW. Okay. Well, <clears throat> before I get into that, I wanted to comment about what Corey said before the song about how, um, and also um, what Ellen Schwartz said in her interview about unions being businesses. And I think that's really sort of a sign or evidence that unions have really been co-opted by the owners, by corporations, um, and by the state, um, just even also by the language that unions use of like, um, you know, market options and things like that, that it's, it's something to, to watch out for and, and really to move towards uh, organizing and mobilizing and and that's one of the reasons why at Holyoke, so I worked um, at the Paulo Freire Social Justice Charter School in Holyoke, Massachusetts from the year it opened um, and for three years. And in the second year, if I remember correctly, yes, in the second year, uh, there had been, in the first year, there had been some talk about unionizing. We used to have non-admin meetings and um and people said, you know, we should have a union. I mean, this is a social justice school. And, you know, we kind of bantered about, like, well, what unions would we want to join? And we threw out MTA. And then someone had issues with the MTA um, and in sort of their philosophy. There was the NEA. Um, and that first year, nobody threw out IWW. And then nothing happened after school was over. Then when we got back, um, things started changing at the school some issues were uh we wanted more teachers of color we were noticing that especially since 99 percent of the students at Palo ferry school um are students of color and we also noticed that the majority of teachers of color that were hired were not treated equally and were let go uh, much more easily and we had other issues of, of sort of management um, dealing 
fairly with teachers um, and also sort of the amount of work that we were expected to do. And another issue that was really important to us were student issues. Um, students brought up the issue of uniforms. Um, uh, two students gave a great presentation to the staff about how the people who started um, Paulo Freire Social Justice School also started PVPA, which is the um, Pioneer Valley Performing Arts School. And she, the students had pointed out that, well, you know, students at PVPA who are middle class, upper middle class, predominantly white, get to wear whatever they want. And yet at our school, which is predominantly students of color, are forced, enforced. I mean, students were suspended. Students were sent home um, for not wearing the uniform. And the student pointed out in her presentation that, well, we know what kinds of jobs are you preparing us for? Are you preparing us to work at Walmart where we have to wear uniforms? Um, And also how it really ties into control and and the sense of incarceration and class. Um, So we incorporated not only teachers' issues, but also student issues in what we wanted to resist against what the administration was doing. But even within our own group, um, there was some hesitation to go towards IWW, uh, but the majority of the teachers ended up choosing IWW for for many reasons. One is what Ellen mentioned. Um, She said common cause, which is basically including everyone. MTA and NEA only accepts teachers, not the janitors, not the cafeteria workers, teachers. And so the inclusivity aspect was really important. It brought in more people brought in the community, parents could join the union, students could join. We wanted to make sure that the janitors and and the cafeteria workers were also part of being able to be at the table to speak their experiences. Um, So that's why we chose IWW, one of the reasons why we chose IWW. Um, And the second reason was that the IWW took on larger issues. For example, uh, just last week uh, in Utica, New York, IWW members um, protested against the deportation that's going on. Um, They tackle issues of mass incarceration, school-to-prison pipeline. They have uh, workers, the sex workers have an IWW union. So it's, it's very grassroots, and it really goes back to the idea of what we were mentioning earlier, of what the purpose of the union was, which is to, yes, demand wages, fair wages, demand fair working conditions in the moment, but also looking beyond that and looking at our community and looking at the larger system that we're living in. Um, And, you know, it goes back to historically, right, the IWW... um, worked against, they, they were against World War I. Um, they included women. They included people of color. Um, and so that, those two reasons are the main reasons why we chose IWW. Now, 
the opposition within our group initially of joining IWW is, does the IWW have teeth? And I think the fear or the stem of that fear was, or the thought behind it is, will they be able to fight for me, for my wages and my working conditions, as opposed to thinking about that plus the larger issues and including everybody else. Um, Because one of the things about organizing as IWW is there are no paid representatives. There are no paid lawyers. There are pro bono lawyers that you can reach out to that could help you. But the organizing happens with the members. That means that the teachers at the Paulo Freire Social Justice <clears throat> Charter School, if they wanted to uh, go on a strike, they had to organize it, not some outside union leader. Yeah. And, and that, in the end, so... And would teachers have to represent themselves? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, teachers would have to represent themselves. Of course, with the backing of IWW. Uh, and so after we had met for a while, uh, we presented it to the administration, and the administration basically said that they won't recognize us. And, and there's no legal backlash yeah. um, for, for not recognizing the IWW. I mean, you, you know, I remember we went into meet to a meeting um, and we got our IWW card and not everyone at the school was behind us. And I think that was part of the problem is um, unless you have majority behind you at the school or, or anywhere, it's, it's difficult because you need those people to be able to, to strike or to be able to make demands um, and, and I definitely found that to be one of the weaknesses. And of course, administration, as in any school or, or any state entity, is going to try to divide. And, and the administration definitely did a lot to divide the workers, right. as always happens. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know um, what the situation is right this moment at, um, at Palo Ferry. Uh, I know... Yeah, but uh, I also, in the last year, worked in Massachusetts and, and had dealings with the MTA. And um, I know Ellen was saying um, saying that she had worked in Massachusetts for a while. And I, I appreciate the current president of MTA, who is Barbara Madaloni, and she's definitely out there speaking out against um, the xenophobia of our current president and social justice. And so... There's some hope there for nice. MTA in Massachusetts, maybe. Hey, Nina, what do you say we go um, play a song written um, by, it's a, a song for, written by the IWW for the IWW way back in 1911. Perfect. Um, the song is called Casey Jones, The Union Scab, written by a labor figure, Joe Hill, mm. in San Pedro, California, shortly after the first day of a nationwide walkout of 40,000 railroy- railway employees in the Illinois Central Shopman Strike of 1911. Perfect. It's a parody of the song The Ballad of Casey Jones, and it's sung to its tune. This is Casey Jones, The Union Scab. All right, and we're back on Indigo Radio. That was Casey Jones, Union Scab. It was performed by Pete Seeger, 
who is also a member of the Almanac Singers, but written by Joe Hill. Uh, kind of a hilarious song and parody of Casey Jones, who was seen as a hero, but also by the union, he was a, seen as a scab. So he, in the song, he is a scab at the railway, crashes and dies and goes up to heaven and starts working the angels union, kick him down to hell. And Nina, we'll go back to you. That's perfect. So we're towards the end of our show. And we'd like to thank uh, Marisa Nielsen for um, the interview that she conducted and to thank Anne Kaplinger-Lair and Ellen Schwartz from the Vermont Workers Center. And so next week, we have Jonaki and Lauren Perlstein. And Becca. Okay. And they will be talking about... They'll England. be talking about England and the elections. England and the elections, yeah. yeah. And maybe about Brexit as well. So stay tuned. And thank you so much. You are listening to Indigo Radio on the Brattleboro Community Radio Station, 107.7 FM. Definitely check out our Facebook page. We will upload this. Uh, if you missed any part of this show, we'll upload it on Facebook. And... Um, you can also find links at on Facebook, photos, and also on Instagram. And we will see you next week. Thank you very much for joining us. And yep. Thank you for joining us today. So we're going to end with two more songs. I'll play them back to back. The first one will be uh, Massachusetts band Dropkick Murphys, who wrote this song, Worker Song. They often play songs that are pro-union. And we'll have that song followed by Leonard Cohen who is singing the popular song, The Union Makes Us Strong, also known as Solidarity Forever. Thank you for joining us.